All right, today's sermon text is in the book of Malachi, chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its, fo its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, that was a lot. We're having all kinds of things going on today. This must be a good one coming, right? We better pray before we jump into that text. Uh, Father God, we just pray this morning as we talk about genuine worship that your spirit would stir our hearts with an affection for you. God, not that we would just simply try and do more or try and look worshipful, but that our love for you, our desire to be in your presence would be ever-increasing because we know that it is here in genuine worship, in your presence, that you are most glorified through us and we are most satisfied in you. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to be here. So Cheryl and I actually celebrated our 21st anniversary a few weeks ago. We made it. You know, 20 was a bigger deal. This is 21, so it's like, ah, eh, that's kind of cool. But we had planned on this evening out, which if you know me, that's a big deal, right? I don't really go anywhere uh, beyond like a 100-yard radius of, of the property. But, you know, 21 years, we were going to go big, be, you know, like you young people going out. And so I got reservations 
all the way over at Chimichurri's, right? <laughs> Almost across the river. Uh, and so, like, I was in it. Like, I had prepped myself. I was ready to go. And then the day of our anniversary, Cheryl's like, eh, I don't really want to go waste 100 bucks on food. I was like, praise Jesus, <laughs> right? And so instead, we picked up Mod Pizza, and I splurged on a $14 bottle of wine, and we went home and watched a movie. Excellent anniversary. Evening was great. But what if, just think with me, what if the weeks leading up to our anniversary, I just avoided her altogether? I worked late. I stayed out in the barn. I came in for dinner and then sat in front of the TV until I crawled into bed. And then on our anniversary, when she woke up, she came out to see that I left some flowers on the table with a sticky note that said, happy anniversary, I'll be out with the guys this evening. Don't look mad at me, right? Hypothetical. This didn't happen. But if it did happen, how do you think that she would respond? Would she well up with gratitude for the unfailing love I was extending to her? I mean, I got her flowers. It's our anniversary, and everyone knows my wife loves flowers. Isn't that what a husband is supposed to do? That would be crazy, right? You can stop acting mad at me. I might be going through the marital motions, but nothing in that scenario would indicate a heart that loves or cherishes my wife. And really, that's exactly what's going on in our text this morning. The Israelites are tossing a bunch of wilted flowers on the altar and wondering why God is displeased. And the truth was that they were in love with someone else. They could care less about God, about his kingdom and his glory. They were just going through the motions of worship. And God responds to their loveless, lifeless worship. Kind of in the same way you would to those wilted flowers sitting on the kitchen table. In verse 10 we read, God says, I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Gosh, that's brutal, right? It's one of the darkest verses in this text. God says, I have no pleasure in you. But it's also one of the most beautiful verses because it comes on the heels of God's proclamation of unfailing love just a few verses before. In verse 2. So if we put them together, verse 2 and verse 10, God says, I love you but I have no pleasure in you. I love you not because you are faithful, but because I am faithful. I love you because you are mine. This is his unconditional love. God says, even as I look upon your faithless lives with displeasure, my love has not waned. My love will not wane. My love is unshakable. God's unfailing love has to be the waypoint as we read through this book. Because there are parts of this book that are just brutal. So we have to remember how God started. This is not God saying to us, get your act together so that I'll love you. It's not God saying, hey, one more sin and I'm out, right? This is over. It's God saying, I have loved you, and I love you still, and I will always love you, but you continue to chase after other gods and other hopes and other identities. 
He rebukes them because he loves them, because he knows that everything they are chasing after is found in him. So the question our text poses today is not, do you go to church? Obviously you do, at least today. Do you serve? Do you give regularly? It's not, do your actions look Christian? God is cutting through the Christian facade that is so easy to hide behind, and he zeroes in on our hearts. Do your actions flow from a deep satisfaction and honor and worship of the Almighty God? Or are you just going through the religious motions, doing what's expected, keeping up appearances? Do you take joy in giving and serving and gathering as his children? Do you look forward to proclaiming God's greatness and majesty? Or do you wake up on Sunday mornings and say to yourself, like the Israelites in verse 13, what a weariness this is. What a weariness. What a burden it is to get all my kids up and ready for worship. What a burden it is to lose this valuable time and give away this valuable money. Do you think about all the better ways you could spend your time and your effort and your devotion? I think if we're honest, we all battle against seeing God's commands as burdensome at times. Seeing our call to sacrifice for him as wearisome. But the very nature of sacrifice is that it's costly. It requires us to let go of things. When we give of ourselves in worship, we are proclaiming by faith that God is more valuable than our time, that he's more valuable than our money or our comfort. When we give sacrificially, when we give to the point that it stretches us, it drives us to trust in God. The reality for the Israelites and for many of us at times is that we just, we forget who God is. And when I say forget, it's not like all of a sudden we woke up and we don't remember that God created all things, that he's Lord over all things. A better word may be that we have a tendency to neglect who God is. Or as Romans 1 says, we read it last week, we suppress the truth. Because what can be known about God is plain to us, Paul says, because God has shown it to us, but we have suppressed the truth of who God is. And our flesh is constantly trying to push aside and to lure us away, to push God out of the picture, to draw us away and, and fix our eyes on shiny things, to occupy our minds with false hopes and false loves. And in our text this morning, God is addressing these wandering hearts and minds. He begins with the question in verse 6, where is my honor? Where is my honor? And it's an important question in a day when it's honorable to be, or it's fashionable to be dishonorable, right? Children are encouraged to dishonor their parents. Spouses are encouraged to dishonor each other. People are encouraged to dishonor their leaders, and even Christians find it fashionable to dishonor God. And God 
ask the question, where is my honor? A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. See, God tells us two things about his character here, that he is a father and that he is a master. Father points to his affection and love for us. And master reveals his authority over us. And some of us are going to naturally gravitate to one of these ideas, to God as a loving, compassionate, gracious father, while others may lean in the direction that he is more authoritative in charge. He's the boss. We see him as master. But what we have to understand is that he is both. He's both. If you only see God as father, it's easy to think of him as this permissive, enabling father, the father that lets you get away with things. Because he doesn't really command you to do things. He just endures you. We treat him kind of like a spoiled kid that expects him to give us anything we want and not really be disciplined if we do wrong. Or conversely, some of you see God primarily as master. You struggle to see his love for you, his tenderness, his concern for you. He is the ruler, but you miss the relationship of the father, his affection behind those commands. As we've said so many times lately, we don't get the luxury of choosing one biblical truth at the expense of another. God is both father and master. These are both aspects of his character, his person, and if we're going to understand God properly, we must see both his fatherly affection and his authority as master. And what he's saying in our text here is that you guys have forgotten who I am. You neither honor me as father nor fear me as master or Lord. And if we're honest, kind of like we talked about with love and hate last week, most of us probably don't have a huge struggle with God as a loving father, right? Some do, but most, at least not as much as we do with God as master and Lord. We just kind of struggle with this idea of authority, right? This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. We value our independence, amen? Ain't nobody wants to aim. You can raise your hand. Do you struggle with authority? I do. Okay. The rest of you struggle with lying? Okay. <laughs> it's normal to struggle with authority. It's called our sin nature. And I think about this with our kids all the time. I look out at all of the young families in this room, and it's super weird because 10 years ago when I started uh, as pastor here, we were like you guys. We had, like, young kids, and we don't anymore. I have three teenagers and a 10-year-old, all double digits. It's crazy. But one thing I can tell you as a young parent with young kids, something that's really, really simple, yet often lacking from parenting these days, your child needs to know that they are under authority. They need to know that they are under authority. 
that they are governed by something greater than themselves and their sinful little desires. And listen, that's not all they need to know. Don't freak out. I'm assuming that your child will know that you love them unconditionally, that you are there for them through anything they face, but that's not all they need to grow healthy in this world. They need to know that they are not the center of the universe. They need to know that. Because contrary to popular belief, growing in age does not equate to growing in maturity. Hear that. Growing in age does not equate to growing in maturity. Children whose parents fail to discipline, who allow their kids to believe that the world is revolving around them, turn into adults who still think the world revolves around them. We know those people. We want our children to know that they are not the ultimate authority over their life, just like we are not the ultimate authority over our own lives. The reason the Israelites had a worship problem and the reason that, that sometimes we have a worship problem is that we miss this. We don't like authority. We don't like being dependent upon anyone. We don't like answering to anyone. We don't want someone telling us that what we desire or how we live is not what's best for us. We don't like that. But here's the thing. Our authority, as parents, is not predicated on our kids liking it. Right? It doesn't matter if they like it. They may convince themselves that they are the king or the queen of the universe, but that doesn't change the reality of the situation, does it? They actually aren't. And this is what we need to understand about God. Your opinion about his authority doesn't really matter. Sorry, it just really doesn't. God is sovereign over your life. People may deny this, but his existence and his power and his glory and his authority as God is not predicated upon your agreement. It's just not. God is the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer of life. And if we grasp that truth, that God created you for a purpose, that he sustained your life with his power, and that he has redeemed you from death, everything changes. If you grasp this, how can you not worship him with everything you are and everything you have? Genuine worship begins and ends with seeing God for who he really is. He is father and master. He deserves our affection and our reverence. But the Israelites were showing him neither of these. Continuing in verse 6, God says, You priests despise my name. And they respond, How have we despised your name? And God says, By offering polluted food on my altar. How have we polluted you? I mean, it's just annoying to read, right? And you young parents, like, get ready for this, right? Seriously, if, it's bad. Like, when your kids get old enough to think they're smart, but not smart enough to know they're not, you're going to experience this. You may walk in one day with your kids as they're putting the, the finishing touches on their finger-painted self-portrait on the living room wall, and it's like, you're in trouble. And they're like, whoa. 
why am I in trouble? Right? It's ridiculous for disobeying what I've told you. Well, what exactly did you tell me? Right? Like, as if there was some lack of clarity about what they're doing in that moment being wrong. And you're going to want to go straight to punishment. And maybe you just should. But God is more patient than you. He's more patient. He actually talks to these people. He breaks it down for them in verse 8 and says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, that's evil, right? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, evil too. Then in verse 13, you bring what has been taken in violence is lame or sick. This you bring as your offering. Shall I accept it from your hands? Once again, crazy to even read. So here's what's going on. They all knew God's law. We even know God's law, and we're a bunch of Gentiles. They knew they were supposed to bring the best, to offer the healthiest, the spotless male that they had, the most valuable in the herd. This was an act of worship and obedience to God. And it wasn't like they forgot. The law was read regularly. They all knew it. It was as obvious as your kid finger painting on the wall. Not a good idea. But instead of bringing their best, they were bringing sick and blind. They were bringing stolen and lame animals to offer to God. They were vowing to give their best. That's what verse 14 says. They're, they're vowing to the Lord, I will bring my best. But then they would offer blemished, defiled, worthless. And I love what, what God says in verse 8. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Can you imagine that? Some dude dragging in a blind, crippled, mangy sheep. Right? I want to honor your power and authority. I brought you a three-legged sheep. That's not going to go well. But this is, this is how sometimes we treat God. We give him the last, the leftover, the worthless. And then we expect God to be pouring out blessings on our life. We expect him to be thankful for fitting him into our busy schedule and our bloated budgets. In verse 9, God says, You bring me lame, worthless offerings, and now you entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? I want to be clear here. Genuine worship is not about what you give to God or what you do for God. It is about our hearts. But as we read in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we choose to give and what we choose to hold on to in this life is a reflection of how we view God. And hear me when I say this, God does not need your money, but how you spend your money is a reflection of what you love. God doesn't need your time, but how you spend your time is a reflection of what is important. So the question is not, do we love God? The Israelites, along with three-quarters of the people in the city, would be like, yeah, love God. Yep. The real question is, what does our life proclaim? What does the way we use our resources say about what we treasure? 
And the reality is that many Christians proclaim God with their mouths. We vow to give him our best. But the way we spend our time or talents or resources sometimes tell a different story. Worship is more than a set of actions. The, the, the sheer fact that we show up on Sunday or, or give to the church or serve in various ways does not constitute genuine worship. They may be expressions of our genuine worship, but true worship that pleases God is an overflow of the heart. Genuine worship flows from a heart that treasures Christ above all else, a heart that honors God and longs to proclaim his unfailing love and unmatched glory. It flows from a heart that believes he is who he says that he is. The Israelites were going through the motions of worship. They were acting religious, but they didn't love God. They stared at their wealth, at their flocks and herds, and said to themselves, owning these animals bring me more comfort and joy than God's promises. I'll give God the blind, worthless animals, and I'll hold on to what I truly value. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we holding on to in our lives? What are those things? Those things that we believe will bring us joy, will bring us comfort, will bring us security. What are we holding on to? See, the point wasn't that they needed to, to give more. It shouldn't be a big surprise, but God doesn't have a goat shortage. He didn't need their goats. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure if he needed a goat, couldn't he just say goat? Isn't that how we all got here? If God wants a goat, he's going to say goat. And in the same way, God does not have a cash shortage. He doesn't need a loan from you. The issue for the Israelites and for many Christians today is that God is not the treasure of their hearts. His promises are not their everlasting hope. And his love and his faithfulness are not their comfort. See, I came from a church tradition where, where this was kind of the norm, where worship on Sunday was about being comfortable, right? And we're crushing that here, obviously. The message was, God is great, but you're greater. And if you join us here at First Church of It's All About You, you're going to be even greater. You'll be around influential people. Your children will be loved. They'll have so much fun. And you'll leave every week with another nugget of wisdom about how great you really are. Amen. So hide the alcohol. Pretend like your marriage isn't falling apart. Throw on a fake smile and let's worship Jesus. Because Jesus is your biggest fan. And the problem was that worship became something that you consumed. It became about entertainment and religious amenities and who's who on Sunday. Glorifying God took a back seat to glorifying you. And you know what God says about worship that revolves around us? About worship that revol revolves around our enjoyment and our comfort? He says, shut the doors and go home. 
not nice. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. If worship is about your experience and your comfort and your preferences, don't bother. I have no pleasure in you. Genuine worship is about proclaiming the infinite glory and majesty and worth of God. It is not about you. It's not about your music preference. It's not about what you wear. It's not about your friends or what they think or how much fun your kids have. That's not worship. Genuine worship is not what happens in an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It's what happens every second of every day of your life. And if our worship is not first and foremost about honoring God, it is worthless. Let me crawl off the soapbox. I could just keep going right there. But I want to wrap things up with this. We all worship. We all worship. We were created by God to find value and meaning and purpose outside of ourselves. The question that the text is posing is not, do you worship? But who or what do we worship? What are we worshiping? What consumes our thoughts? How do we prioritize our time? How do we use our resources and spend our money? The answer to these questions reveals the true object of our worship. The Israelites said they love God, but they clung tightly to their stuff. They said they love God, but their thoughts were consumed with other things. And we get that. I love God, but it's hard to find time to read the Bible and pray, to give up a night of the week for small group, to invest in people's lives. That's that's costly. It's hard. It's a struggle to get the whole family out of the door on Sunday morning and get to church. I mean, kids, they're crazy. I know that these things are hard. Everyone in this room has battled these thoughts to some degree, probably this morning. Genuine worship is always costly. It's always hard. But if we're not sacrificing our time and our energy and our resources for God, then we are sacrificing them for something else. We have to understand this. We are all giving our worship to something. So if somebody told you that following Christ was easy, you were fed a lie. Following Christ will cost you everything. Jesus was clear. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we hold tightly to the things of this world, if we love this world, we will lose everything. But if you pour out your life for Christ in genuine worship, God says all things will be yours for eternity. All things. Do you believe that God is who he says he is? That he's more valuable than anything else in this world? If so, how does our life reflect that truth? Ask yourself that. This week, in your quiet time, pray through that. What does my life say about what I love most? It's a good question, probably for every day.
I'll close with God's words from verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Let's pray. God, God, we ask this morning that you would make us into a people whose lives herald your glory and grace. God, a people confident in who we are because we have an unshakable faith in who you are. God, we thank you that you are faithful even when we struggle with faith. God, that your love does not wane even when we wander from you, even when we chase after lesser things. God, draw us near this morning that we might rest in the joy and security of your presence, that we might worship you more and more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.